good to be together. Amen. It's good to be back in Exodus. It's been a little time, and um, this will be for later. <laughs> you know, it, it may surprise some of you, but um, having looked out over the landscape of this glorious book, Exodus, this is one of the sections I've been most looking forward to, Exodus 28. So, uh, the title of my sermon, <clears throat> Clothed in Holiness, and the big idea It's a mouthful. A holy God provides a holy solution for his unholy people to be in his holy presence. And all God's people said, amen, because that applies to all of us. One more time, and then I have a really good story to tell you. Uh, (laughs) It's a good one. Uh, A holy God provides a holy solution for his unholy people to dwell in his holy presence. Amen. So when I was in high school, I had a friend, his name was Lee, and uh, we went to church together, we were in youth group together, and he wanted to go to church camp this particular year, and Lee didn't have any money, and so he came up with this idea that was brilliant, how he was going to, if I remember correctly, I think church camp was around $350, we went to Padre Island, it was beach camp with our church, we'd bring in a speaker, and it was a whole week, and uh, Lee really wanted to go, but didn't have a job at the time, didn't have money, and his parents said, if you want to go, you got you to gotta gather the money yourself. And so, and this guy was brilliant, by the way. He's a really sharp, great student, uh, but he came up with this plan, and he shared it with us on the first day of school. He goes, I'm going to go to Goodwill, and I'm going to buy, I don't know, three or four suits, old, ugly suits from like the 80s, and I'm going to wear a suit every day for the school year. And that first week, I'm going to ask students to give me a dollar if I'll commit to wearing a suit every day for a year. And you wouldn't believe it. He did it. He did it. Every day. And it, was, it never got old. I never took it for granted because these suits were hideous, right? I mean, they were, and I think that was, he just thought it'd be funny. But he never missed a day. And again, that, and Matt, you maybe remember this. Uh, he got, during lunch, he would just go around with this little clipboard. Hey, here's what I want to do. Here's why I want to go to church camp. Will you give me a dollar? Yes. What's your name? Write it down. He got like over 300 signatures. We're getting really close. And, I, you know, I had several classes with Lee. And, uh, you know, you'd see him walk in to class wearing a suit. It, it just never got old. I would just die laughing. And for the whole school year, he did it. And now we get to the last week of school. It's collection time, right? And so at lunch, in a suit, he's going around tables. Hey, guys, it's the last week of school. You know, you committed. Here's your name. You signed right here. Give me a dollar. Oh, I don't have a dollar. I'll bring it tomorrow. And sure enough, he got all the money. Now, if you were a transfer student and you're seeing this unfold before your eyes, in a school cafeteria, you're going to be like, what in the world is happening? One, why is this guy wearing a suit? And then why are people giving him money? And you know what I would have said? If someone said, Chris, why is he getting this reward, this prize? Because of what he's wearing. It's because of his clothes. Here's the question I want us to ponder. Everybody, this morning, have you been clothed in Christ? Now, that may sound strange. Clothed in Christ? What does that mean? Well, 
This is how the Bible describes two things, R&R. Now, students, spring break this week, I hope you got some R&R. We know that to be what? Rest and relaxation. But I want to talk about two different R's, representation and right standing. And the Bible uses the imagery of clothing to depict right standing before God and representation. We need R&R. Let me give you an example. If you go before a judge, if, if you're convicted, you've been charged, what do you need? When you stand before a judge, you need representation. Apart from Christ, we are all guilty. We need what? We need representation. We need right standing. So again, the question, because this is your only hope, have you been clothed in Christ? I'll explain that concept as we go on. Three things I want to talk about this morning from Exodus 28. Three points. Number one, all related to clothing, by the way. God's glory, God's provision, and God's purpose. Now, we have an entire chapter in Exodus dedicated to the priest's clothes, his garments. Was that strange to anybody? Maybe, maybe not. Let me, I feel like this is necessary before we dive in. Let me answer this question. This is rudimentary. Who were the priests? Who were these guys, by the way? What was their job? What were they about? Well, these were the Lord's set-apart servants in the tabernacle. And only those from a particular tribe, the tribe of Levi, could serve in this most holy work. And their job, their job was to represent Israel before the Lord. Their primary job, and this is helpful, was twofold. Okay, two things. And interestingly, their job recalls Adam and Eve's job in the Garden of Eden. So if you go back to Genesis 2.15, you read, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden, twofold, to work it and keep it. Now, those same two verbs in Hebrew are used to describe the task of the Levitical priesthood. They were to work and to keep. So let's go. What does that mean to work and to keep? What did that amount to? Okay, let me, let me just break this down quickly. Adam and Eve's job in the Garden of Eden was to serve the Lord and to guard or protect his sacred space from intruders. Did they do that? Did an intruder come? Yes, what happened? The intruder tricked Adam and Eve, right? They they should have said, no, we're going to listen to the word of God, but instead they listened to the words of that crafty serpent. They did not do their job as priests. They did not protect God's sacred space from intruders. Now, if you go to Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 3, verses 5 to 8, listen to God's description of the priests, and you're going to find the same two verbs from Genesis 2.15, the verbs to work, and to keep. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister, as they serve at the tabernacle. They shall guard, there it is again, all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister 
at the tabernacle. I'm going to make the argument later that our job as believers, because we believe in the priesthood of all believers, is to help guard God's sacred space. And what that entails, we'll see shortly. But like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the priests were to serve and guard. They were to work and to keep God's holy place holy. So the, the tabernacle was really to be seen as a new type of Eden and Israel as a new Adam. And with that, that wasn't all the priests were to do. With that, they were to offer sacrifices to the Lord. They were to minister to the Lord on behalf of Israel. They were to represent God's people before God. And finally, the priests were to instruct. They were to instruct the Lord's people with the word, the law. David Shrook notes, this is a helpful little quote. He says, The priest played the significant role of standing guard in God's house, making sacrifices for God's people, and instructing the people so that they could enjoy God's blessings. Now listen, when the priests did their job, God blessed his people, but when they failed, when the priests failed at their job, God's curses fell on the people. Now, the, the priesthood served. Now, I'm going to say this probably 15 times this morning. The priesthood served as a perpetual reminder to God's people of their need for representation, their need for a holy mediator. Look around and tell your neighbor, I need, we need representation. I need, we need a holy mediator. Go ahead. What do we need? We need representation and a holy mediator. All right, so let's talk about the priest in their clothes. What do we learn? Number one, God's glory. All that God does is for his what? Everything. I mean, this theme is massive in the book of Exodus. Everything he does is to display his glory, and his glory is meant to evoke what response? Worship. So keep that in mind. God's glory, let me read verse 2 and then verse 40. So we're going to see that God's glory bookends or frames our chapter. Verse 2, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty, for glory and for beauty. And then all the way at the end in chapter, I'm sorry, verse 40, For Aaron's sons you shall make coats and sashes and caps, you shall make them for glory and beauty. So what frames our passage? God's what? His, his glory and His glory is meant to evoke what response? Worship. Praise. Now, I wonder if any of us have seen this before. This is fascinating. What we see in Exodus 20, I know it's been a little while since we've been in Exodus, but I think you'll hopefully recall what we've talked about. The, the different materials used, the different colors used for the tabernacle, precious stones, precious materials, multicolors. Does that ring a bell? Okay, now listen. What we learn in Exodus 28 is that the priests resemble the tabernacle. Isn't that odd? The priests resemble the tabernacle, clothed in rich colors, costly materials, and precious stones, just like the tabernacle. 
So here's the point. As the tabernacle, right, this place of worship, this place of sacrifice, as the tabernacle and its furnishings or furniture were intended to reflect a holy, royal, right, kingly and glorious God, so the priests were called to reflect a holy, royal, and glorious God. You know, this was intended to be a holy ministry, a holy vocation. This is seen in Exodus 28, 33-35, and this may surprise some. On its hymn, so kind of at the bottom of this priestly robe, on its hymn you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarn around its hem with bells, 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 bells. And again, I think of like a little dog that has a bell on its collar and how vexing and annoying that can be, right? Just walking in and the ding a ding ding you're like, oh my goodness, come on. What's the purpose of bells? I mean, every time the priest walks, you're going to hear that little jingle. Maybe you like the jingle, I don't know. With bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe, and it shall be on Aaron when he ministers. Listen, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. What? (laughs) What is happening right here? God is holy, amen? He's not to be trifled with. We've discussed this already in detail. This, this passage, this section, what I just read, should be, because it is, awe, A-W-E, awe-inspiring. If the high priests didn't serve according to God's word, they would what? They would die. They would be struck down by a holy God. So the, the bells were an indicator of the priest's life. Think of the bells as a priestly vital sign. Does that make sense? It's a priestly vital sign. So if you continue to hear the bells, hey, it's a good indicator. It means that the sacrifice was accepted. If the, if the bells cease to be heard, what does it indicate? Priest is dead because he didn't serve in accordance to God's word. Now, I'm going to ask a question. Okay, this is rhetorical, so you don't have to say anything out loud, but think about this. Have we lost our awe? Have we lost our reverence before the Lord. I think many of us are quick to make the mistake and assume that somehow the Lord has changed. Let me unpack this. We retort. You hear this passage of ringing bells and the ceasing of bells and God killing priests because they didn't do something exactly right. And you think, come on, that's all Old Testament stuff. That's not the same God that we know today. Listen, that's dangerous ground that you're walking on if you assume that. There was an ancient heresy called Marcionism, and Marcion, he tried to place a divide between what he called the God of the Old Testament, who was mean and wrathful and vengeful, and the God of the New Testament, who was just gracious and loving and merciful. But it's the same God, amen? Does God change? We, we sing about that this morning. He doesn't change. Now, thankfully, thankfully, through our perfect mediator, Jesus, we have access to the Lord. Amen? Through who he is and what he's done. And yet, the Lord has not changed. He hasn't become less holy. 
He hasn't become less awesome. Why do we live that way? He still demands our awe and reverence, and rightfully so, because He is what? He is God. Brothers and sisters, are you living in such a way that demonstrates a holy reverence and awe before a holy God, or have you lost your awe? Have you lost your awe? Let me give you an example. I lived in Washington State for 10 years. Whenever driving down Interstate 5, Interstate 5 is massive. It goes from Canada all the way to Mexico. But where we lived north of Seattle, whenever I drove down I-5, and I did it every day, I could see the mountains. I never, you can ask my wife, I never took the mountains for granted. I was always in awe. Just their beauty and splendor. Now, if I was heading south towards Seattle, this was nuts. You're looking at the horizon, and it's just flat going south. And then all of a sudden, rising out of the ground at 14,411 feet is Mount Rainier, an active volcano. One of the most intimidating sights you'll ever see. It's just by itself. Like, you look out south, there's nothing, nothing, and then this massive mountain. And on a clear day heading south, you would just see this glorious sight, and it would evoke awe and wonder. It was haunting. It was intimidating. Every time I saw Mount Rainier, I was in awe. It revived my awe, you could say. How do we revive our awe, our wonder at the Lord? Do you know? Do you care to know? Is that important, church? Behold the glorious Savior in the Word of God to have your awe revived. Every time you open this book, God's holy Word, and you behold the Holy King, what is going to happen inevitably? You're going to have your awe, your wonder revived. Amen? So keep going back. Again, every time I go south, oh, it's just like, whoa, it's incredible. Every time we open up this book, we are meant to have our awe, our wonder at our holy God revived. I've talked about this a lot because it's said a lot in Exodus. God's holiness was intended to reveal his glory. We've already explored this relationship throughout the book of Exodus. Namely, this relationship between God's holiness and his glory. His glory is revealed through his holiness. Now, the problem, you know, you read the Bible, and it seems like there's a healthy season for God's people, but hey, don't, don't blink, because what's going to happen? Quickly, they're going to fall into sin. So the, the problem is that God's priests often failed in their holy vocation, thus revealing our need for a perfectly holy priest, a perfectly holy representative a perfectly holy mediator. You know, one quickly thinks of Nadab and Abihu. I think this is Leviticus 10. They don't function according to God's word. They offer unlawful fire and they're struck down dead. They rejected their holy vocation. We need a holy priest. We need a holy representative 
We need a perfect mediator. In sum, the, the purpose of the priesthood and his garments is the glory of God. A glory revealed by the holiness of God. A holiness revealed by the task of the priests. A holiness that was intended to lead God's people to awe and wonder at the Lord to worship. What's next? Number two. Number two, God's provision. God's provision. Now, we've already read these sections, but let's read them again. Verses 3 and 4, and then we're going to turn quickly to verses 9 through 12 and 28 to 30. And there's a, a picture of the priest's garments. It's helpful as a point of reference. I'll talk about some of those things. Can you see that clearly? Let me blow it up. I can't do that. So uh, if you can't see it, I'm sorry. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkered work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments. What kind of garments? What's the adjective? Holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. And so in order for Aaron and his sons to serve as priests, what kind of garments do they need? Holy garments. Don't forget that. Now we're going to jump down to verses 9 to 12. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them, this is so cool, the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. Verse 12, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Hang on to that. Now verse 28. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim. And I'll talk about that briefly. And they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord. How often? Regularly. I know that's a lot. Bear with me. We see, again, this is the second point, the Lord's provision, God's provision. We see the Lord's gracious and generous provision for his people on two levels. How many levels? There's two. Okay, so first... He provides holy clothes, holy garments for his holy priests to represent a holy God on behalf of a what kind of people? An unholy people. And second, second, the priests themselves were to serve as mediators to a holy God on behalf of God's unholy people. Now, just as a reminder, what's a mediator? A mediator is someone who stands in the gap, who serves on behalf of another, who represents another. 
And this is seen throughout Exodus 28 in numerous examples of rich symbolism. First, this is so good. Listen carefully. In verses 9 to 12, we see that on each shoulder, now you remember back in the 80s, women would wear shoulder pads, right? And I remember when I was six years old, for Halloween, I wanted to be a Dallas Cowboy. And you know what I did for shoulder pads? I took my mom's, and I stuffed them in that little jersey. So imagine there's like these stones on the shoulders of the priest, and on the stones, there's two stones, there's 12 tribes, six names of tribes here, and six names of tribes here. What this symbolized was the priest's role as the representative of all the people of Israel whenever he ministered in the tabernacle. He was essentially bringing God's people before God. Isn't that amazing? He's bringing the Lord's people before the Lord. And next, we learn about this breastplate or breast piece, this square thing. You see it right there. It's gold of judgment. It's a golden plate, a golden square. It was over the heart of the priest, and there were 12 stones. And on each stone was the name of a tribe of Israel. The breast plate with the stones on the shoulder pieces meant what? That the nation of Israel was doubly represented before the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Now, for the golden breastplate, verse 30 stands out. It reads, And in the breastplate of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. The priest bore the names of God's people on his shoulders and over his what? Over his heart. One brother writes, This draws attention to Israel's place near the high priest's heart. And think of what kind of stones. These were precious stones. What this conveyed was that God values his people. Amen? He values his people. They're represented by precious stones over the heart of the priest. He goes on to write, this is Philip Ryken. He says, it was his responsibility, the priest, not only to bear the people's burdens on his shoulders, but also to have their interests at heart. The, the priests were true servants of God's people. Amen? Now, what of the mention of the Urim and the Thummim? The what a what? The huh? <laughs> Not much is mentioned in Scripture regarding these two stones. We don't really know how they were used, how they functioned. However, we do know that they were occasionally, and that's the key word, they were occasionally used in times of crisis to determine God's will. Now, we see something similar in the New Testament, in Acts 1, when the disciples are seeking to replace Judas, they cast lots, like dice. Strange. Not, not normative. This was not the norm, by the way. But even though it wasn't the norm, it did not function outside of God's providence. God used these means to make his will known. This is helpful. This is from one of my professors back in Boston. He wrote, theologically, this is old Doug, Dougie Doug, Doug Stewart, Theologically, the, the Urim and the Thummim 
represented something on the order of last resort appeals to God for guidance. The people's first resort was supposed to be obedience to the written covenant, the word. Amen? Now, what does all of this teach us? Again, I, I love Aaron's prayer. You know, Lord, what does this mean for us in 2023 as new covenant believers? A holy God provides a holy solution for his unholy people to be in his holy presence. Do we need that word today? Are we holy by nature? No, we're not. We're unholy. We're sinful. But what do we see in Exodus 28? A holy God provides a holy solution for his unholy people to be in his holy presence. The priests were to guide God's people through God's means for God's glory and the people's good. They were to represent the Lord's people before the Lord. We need a holy representative to stand in our place. We need a holy mediator. And all God's people said, amen. And now our last point, number three, God's purpose. What is God's purpose in all of this? Verse 2, verse 4, and then verses 36 to 38. Listen carefully. And you shall make, what's the adjective? What kind of garments? There to be what kind of garments? Holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Verse 4, these are the garments that they shall make a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. So again, in order for Aaron and his sons to serve God and serve God's people as priests, they needed what kind of garments? Holy garments. That's really important. Now, verse 36, this really drives the point home. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. <laughs> and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Holy garments are tied to the priest's holy function as holy priests. As seen with the turban and again that golden plate, the priests were called to be what? Holy. What was engraved on the golden plate that was fastened onto this headpiece, the turban? Kodesh le Yahweh. Holy to the Lord. Again, in order for God's priests to represent God's people in God's place, they had to be newly clothed. Clothing's important, isn't it? It's important. It's important in the Bible. I'm going to actually, in a minute, I'm going to preach the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation using the theme of clothing. Take it to the bank. It's about to happen, but not yet. Their holy clothes, the priest's holy clothes, symbolized the necessary holiness of God's priests. A holiness that was necessary for entering into God's presence. God's unholy people needed what? They needed atonement. They needed a substitute. They needed a sacrifice. But in order for atonement to be made, God's people needed holy 
representatives. In order for these holy representatives to be holy, they needed holy garments, holy clothes. <laughs> Not like holes in them, right? You know what I'm saying, like consecrated, holy, set apart. As we've seen already, the purpose of the priest's garments and the purpose of their ministry was so that God's unholy people could be in the presence of a holy God. So what was necessary for the priest's intercessory, his mediatorial role to work? His holiness, his righteousness. Again, the purpose of the holy clothes and thus the holy priesthood was to provide a holy solution for God's unholy people to be in God's holy presence. We need a holy representative to stand in our place. We need a holy mediator. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, before concluding our time together, I want to quickly look at two more items. This is always important, right? This is, this is where Scripture takes us. Here's the question. How does Exodus 28 point to Jesus in the gospel? Three things here. Number one, Jesus is God's provision for sinful people. He is our holy priest and our perfect mediator. And again, all God's people said, Amen. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 reads, Since then, we have a high priest, a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. We need a perfect mediator. Who is that? It's Jesus. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Number two, as our perfect high priest, Jesus represents us, those who trust in him, before the Father. He brings us into the Father's presence. Amen? 1 John 2, 1 and 2. John writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a lawyer, a representative before the Father. Jesus Christ, the what? The righteous. The righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The first point, again, the question is, how does Exodus 28 point to Christ in the gospel? Number one, Jesus is God's provision for sinful people. He is our holy priest, our perfect mediator. Number two, as our perfect high priest, Jesus represents us, those who trust in him before the Father. He brings us into the Father's presence. You know, for three years, I taught a class on Islam. I took um, high school and college students for three years to Albania. And Albania uh, is heavily influenced by Islam. So I knew our kids were going to be engaging Muslims. So I, I wanted them to understand the Muslim worldview. And I remember coming across, I thought it was really interesting. So everybody look at your hands. Just look at your palms. So everyone has kind of an upside-down V in what looks like an I, Okay. Those are Arabic numerals for eight and one. Eight plus one is what? Come on, math students. Eight plus one is what? 
9, and, and then you have the same thing on your other hand. 8 plus 1 is 9, and then when you bring your hands together, 9 and 9 is 99, and they would say, you know, Allah apparently has 99 names, and he's written his name on our hands, and that's a nice sentiment. <laughs> but what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Oh, this is good. Listen to Isaiah. Isaiah 49, 16, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Our names are written on his hands. He bears us up. He carries us into his presence. If you know John 10, Jesus says, My sheep, nobody can take them out of my hands. My father's got them. No one can take them out of my father's hands. Oh, isn't that good? Jesus carries us into God's presence. If you desire to be in God's presence, there's no other name and no other way but Jesus. Amen? Because he's the perfect mediator, the perfect representative. We need him. And number three, as our perfect high priest, Jesus clothes us in his righteousness and holiness. Hey, can I preach the whole book of Isaiah? I mean, these are two massive tasks. And I have like five minutes left. But I want to preach Isaiah in one minute. Can I do it? Is that okay? I'm asking your permission. Okay. Isaiah 11. There is an individual described in Isaiah, the suffering servant. He's going to do and be all that Israel as a nation was called to do and be, but failed to do and be. And he's going to do it for God's people. He's going to rescue. He's going to win the day. How is he described? Isaiah 11, verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He's going to be clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. Now go to the end of Isaiah. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So here's the question, the million-dollar question. How do we go from this suffering servant, the hero, the king, the Messiah, being clothed in righteousness to God's people being clothed in righteousness? What happens in the middle of Isaiah? How do we go from here to here? How do we get clothed? Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brings us peace. There's an exchange. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. He gives us his clothes. If you don't know 2 Corinthians 5.21, you need to memorize it. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Who wants to be clothed in righteousness? Do you remember the question I asked earlier? We need new representation. We need right standing. How do we get it? Through Jesus. Through Jesus. All right, here's a quick biblical theology of clothing. Now, if you looked in my closet, you'd be horrified. I don't have a lot of clothes. I wear a lot of the same thing. I'll wear a shirt for 10 years, 15 years. I'm serious. My wife's at home taking care of Luke. He's really sick right now. She'd be doing this right now. I know. Just head in her palm just wide. There's like this theme. A lot of flannel. A lot of Wrangler jeans. That's really all you're going to see. If you look 
at the clothing across the pages of Scripture, they're all shaped the same. They're cross-shaped. They're cross-shaped. Let me explain. Let's start in Genesis. Genesis 3.21, Adam and Eve, they have disobeyed God. They're getting punted out of the garden for disobeying God and listening to that crafty serpent. But what does God do? It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Now listen, I've killed a lot of animals, and I eat them, by the way. But if you're going to skin something, what does that something have to be before it's skinned? Dead. Something died so that they could be clothed. Do you get it? Something died. There was a substitute so that Adam and Eve could be clothed. And then you go to Exodus 28, and you see that God provides holy garments for God's holy representatives, right? The priests, so that they can do the ministry in the tabernacle and represent the Lord's people before the Lord. And then Isaiah 11, the hero to come, the king promised, the suffering servant, he's going to be clothed in faithfulness and righteousness. And then, oh, this is a sermon by itself. I'm just going to read it. David and I talked about this this week. Zechariah 3, 1 to 5. Have you heard this passage? Listen to this. This is what the Lord does for his people through Jesus. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Do you know what Satan means, that word in Hebrew, Satan? It means accuser. That's what Satan does. He accuses God's people. And that's what he's doing here in Zechariah 3. He's accusing Joshua, the high priest. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. He's clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And then he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Filthy garments removed, pure garments put on. That is the work of the Lord in the people of God. And now Satan has no grounds to accuse us. Why? Because we're clothed not in our righteousness, but whose? His. Of course, we have the example of Christ in the church. We're in Christ, new creation. We're clothed in his righteousness. How does the story end, by the way? How does the story end? Let me read this quickly. Revelation 7, 9 to 10. This is the end of our story. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne. And before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. (laughs) Our hope is new clothes. Amen? (laughs) When was the last time you told a fellow believer you look good? Not because of what they're wearing, but because they're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Amen? You look good. You look good. Last question. i got to move quickly. What does Exodus 28 mean for the church today? The priesthood of all believers. We, if you're a believer, we, all who have trusted in Jesus for salvation and right standing before God, have access to the Lord. Amen? 
And all of us are called to serve and to guard God's sacred space, which is what? What is God's sacred space now? You're looking at it. It's the church. It's the people of God. How do we guard this sacred space? Church membership. Church membership. That's how we guard the gate. Do we just let anybody join the church? No. They have to have a clear gospel testimony. Amen? They have to hold to the truths of the Bible. If they don't, they're a danger to God's sacred space. Do we love the lost? Yes. We evangelize them. But we don't treat them as believers. So how do we guard? If, if, there's, if there's a priesthood of all believers, how do we guard this sacred space? Through church membership. How do we serve one another? Again, the priest's job is to serve and to protect, to guard. How do we serve? By doing the one another. Amen? By using the gifts God has given us to serve this body so that this body looks more like who? You have a vocation. You have a job. If you're a believer, it's to serve and to guard. Take that job seriously and do it. Get to know this body. Serve this body and protect this body. And how do you protect this body? By knowing the word better. By knowing it inside and out. Last question. What does Exodus 28 mean for the unbeliever? In order to enter into God's presence, we need a perfect mediator. We need new clothes. And we cannot serve as this perfect mediator because we've all done what? What sets Jesus apart? He never did what? He never sinned. We have sinned. Therefore, we cannot serve as that perfect mediator. But we need one. And furthermore, we can do nothing to earn these clothes. We can't work hard enough. We can't be good enough. They must be given to us a gift of grace. And they're received by faith in Jesus. Let me just end with this story. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, has written a number of children's books, and we have all of them. This is called The Prince with Dirty Clothes. In this book, I'm going to summarize this, a new priest is given his first task to go to the castle and preach before the king. But on the way, there's a storm, and he's thrown from his horse into the mud, and his priestly garments are ruined. He can't go before the king with unclean garments, spoiled garments. He goes to the town washer and says, can you take out these stains? I, I'm sorry, I, I can't do it. He finally goes before the king, and the king's compassionate. He goes, go see my son, the prince. And he goes to the prince, and the, the prince says, hey, listen, tomorrow I want you to go back to the king, and I'm going to have something for you that will allow you to preach before the king. Again, remember, the king's my father. I know him well. And the next day, still in his dirty, priestly clothes, he goes before the king, and everybody's laughing, and they're making fun of him. But the prince walks in. And, you know, one thing I didn't point out, the first time the priest meets the prince, he's in awe of his garments, his robe. It's beautiful. He's never seen anything like it. Royal blue. But when the prince meets the priest at the castle, He's not wearing it anymore. He took it off. And he gives it to the priest. He tells the priest, you take off your robes and give them to me. And he put them on. Do you see what happened? There was an exchange. He took his old, sinful, stained,
stinky, spoiled garments and put them on himself. And he gave the priest his beautiful, clean, perfect garments, which allowed him to go before the king, his father. Let me just read one excerpt from this. Everyone watched Jonathan, that's the priest's name, as he carefully opened the gift the prince had given to him. Jonathan's eyes grew wide when he saw what it was. It was the perfect present. Inside were the beautiful clothes that belonged to the prince. The prince smiled again at Jonathan and said, These are the clean clothes I promised you. They are yours forever. They will never wear out. There is not a spot of dirt on them, and nothing can make them dirty. Then the prince said to Jonathan, Take off your dirty clothes and give them to me. Come on, God, are you kidding me? Jonathan took off his dirty clothes and gave them to the prince, and the prince put them on himself. Next, the prince said, put on my clothes and preach your sermon. Jonathan's hands shook as he put on the prince's beautiful clothes. When Jonathan was dressed, the prince said to the king, Father, may Jonathan now stand in your presence? He is one of my people. The king was pleased. He said to the prince, yes, my son, as long as he wears your clothes, he may stand in front of me. Oh, man. I mean, come on. If you're in Christ, that's true of you. Jesus, this is called double imputation. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? And today you can be. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, the one who lived a perfect life for us. He's that perfect mediator. He died on the cross taking our punishment and he rose again proving that his saving work worked. The only way you can stand... The only way we can stand before a holy God is if we have the righteousness of Christ. we got to have those new clothes. And you get them by trusting in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we're in awe that you would give your life for sinners like us. Remind us by your word and your spirit working through your word that we are sinners, that we deserve hell but it is by your grace that, Jesus, you came to this world and you lived a perfect life for sinners. And you died on the cross for sinners. And you rose again for sinners to save sinners like us, an unholy people, to make us holy through your perfect life and your perfect sacrifice. We thank you, Jesus. We give you our lives. We thank you that you've given us your righteousness, those who have trusted in you. And I pray, Father, that you would give us just a great burden for the lost, that we look out into the world, into our relational worlds, our our places of work, the classroom, our neighborhood, even our homes, and we see people that are not clothed in your righteousness because they haven't trusted in you. I pray that you give us boldness, Father, to take the good news to them and to call them to leave their sin behind and to trust in Jesus for forgiveness and new life. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son and the new clothes that we have in him, that we can stand before you righteous because of Jesus. We love you and pray these things in your Son's name. And all God's people said, amen.